0: Okay, uh, yeah, today is Yom Ha'atzmaut. that's the uh, Israeli Independence Day, and occurred on the English calendar on May the 14th, 1948, and that was the day that the British mandate ended. Now, I had a lot of nice maps and pictures for you and to explain all of this, but uh, the sovereignty of God decided to disrupt my computer, and so... Wait a minute, it finally stopped. Just in time, maybe I'll actually be able to use something here. Yeah, oh, wow. Just in time, isn't that providential? Okay, now in 1948, on May the 14th, the British mandate over Palestine ended. And when it ended, the Jewish People's Council, uh, the, uh, representing the Yeshuv, which is the Hebrew term for the, the, uh, those who lived in Israel, met at the Tel Aviv Museum and proclaimed the establishment of the state of Israel. And then David Ben-Gurion went out and gave a speech announcing the Declaration of Israel's Independence now, all of this is really important to understand in a, th- a couple of things that are coming up within the, just the next few months. What happened at the end of World War I was that the League of Nations met, first of all, at Versailles in order to establish the, bo- the legal boundaries for all the nations in Europe. That's what they were charged to do. They did not meet until January of 1920 to establish the, bou- the legal boundaries for all the nations that came out of the old, um, um, uh, no, not the British Empire, the Ottoman Empire, out of the old Ottoman Empire. And so the, that met in San Remo in Italy. What's important about San Remo, San Remo is San Remo is legally charged by the four powers, which were English, England, France, Japan, and Italy with establishing the legal boundaries for all of the nations that are now make up the Middle East. In other words, they established the boundaries for Iraq, for Syria, for Jordan, for Lebanon, and for Israel or, or Palestine, as it was called at that time. And then they delegated th- that Syria would be controlled or overseen by the French and Palestine would be overseen by the British until the native people could be uh, self-ruling. They did not believe that either the Arabs in Syria or the uh, or those living in Palestine could rule themselves. And so th- these mandates had a time limit on them. And once that time limit ran out, then they, the people were to become so self-governing. And so the British mandate ran out at the end of um, on May 14, 1945, Prior to that, in uh, November uh, 29th of 1947, there was a UN plan of partition. Now, this is the uh, uh, land of Israel. When you look at the previous map here, this was the area uh, designated for the British mandate. They also uh, oversaw uh, Iraq. But the area that is shaded a little bit dark I'm not sure what color that is. It looks kind of like a mauve or a flesh color on the right, which is now the Hashemite kingdom of Jordan. That was originally supposed to go to Israel. But because the Arabs wanted an Arab state, and there was an agreement, a a contract or a p- treaty actually signed between uh, King Faisal and Chaim uh, Weitzman. Uh, agreeing that the Arabs would support the Jews in their claims, and the Jews would support the Arabs in their claims, uh, then the Arabs turned their back on on Israel, and rejected that. But so the, the British were forced to divide uh, that the the mandate at the Jordan River, so that the land west of the Jordan River was to go to Israel as a homeland for the Jews, and the land to the uh, to the east was went to the went to the Arabs. That's the real Palestinian state over there, but nobody really cares when it comes to Israel about the rule of law. In 1949, before the um, 1947, before the breakup of the mandate, the uh, United Nations voted on a plan of partition to partition the land that was supposed to go to Israel even further and the area in red was designated land that was supposed to go to the Arabs and the green was supposed to go to Israel. Now, if you pay attention to that, uh, there's just barely a connection between the southern uh, area in green uh, going up to the area along the uh, Sheffield along the coast there, and then there's just a little bit of the Galilee uh, that was supposed to go to uh, to Israel, and so this was just, they hardly had any land at all. Israel's not that big. You can put it into East Texas a couple of times. So uh, when you start giving most of it away to the Arabs, there wasn't a lot left, and most of that land uh, was pretty arid, was pretty much desert, especially down in, in, the, uh, in the southern part. Now, why this is important is because when Israel declared their independence, there were five Arab nations that attacked them. And that attack actually began uh, after the UN uh, vote to partition the country because the Arabs saw what would what would take place once May the 14th arrived and the British would pull out. And so they wanted to uh, put themselves in a position where they could take over the land and run all of the Jews out and, and kill all of them. When the war ended, a... a Armistice was signed in nineteen forty nine between israel and and uh, the kingdom of Jordan, so that in this map we see the this this black line here that runs down into J- Jerusalem. this whole sort of uh, dark blue area here is all uh, west all part of Jerusalem. in fact, this line here represents the boundary of moder- the modern city of of Jerusalem. So you can see it's much, much larger than it was in 1949. And the blue areas represent uh, Israeli settlements. And this, this line represents the armistice line uh, that was settled on in 1949, and it was stated in the armistice that it was not to be a boundary. But, of course, ever since then, that's what the Arabs keep uh, t- claiming is the boundary and that everything needs to go back to that 1949 line. It's referred to as as the Green Line. And it split Jerusalem in half, and as you can see, this square here is the Old City. And so when they talk about East Jerusalem, they're talking about the Old City of Jerusalem, they're talking about uh, the Mount of Olives and all of that area down uh, to the southeast of the Old City. So all of this, it would be... Designated part of the Palestinian this new Palestinian state. Now, in just a few months, I believe in four months, the UN is going to vote on a partition plan, and so this is something you need to be in prayer about, because if they, if the UN declares that a Palestinian state, and in their wisdom, decide to split Jerusalem then it's going to put all of the Jews living in Israel under a tremendous threat again of destruction. And as you can see from this map, all the areas in darker to lighter shaded uh, blue are uh, Jewish settlements in what is called the West Bank or the Palestinian Authority. So you can see that there's huge number of Jews who have built settlements in Jerusalem in other areas of the city, because until, really until recently, the last eight or nine years, when they've made an issue out of these settlements, this was, uh, they viewed Jerusalem as united. Israel conquered it and controlled all of it since the 1967 war, and it was, it's legitimate and purely and truly legal for them to settle in all of Jerusalem. But on one other note is if we go back to the San Remo decisions where they set the international boundary by international law, they incorporated within the San Remo uh, decision all of the language in the Balfour Declaration verbatim. They included it word for word, which moved the Balfour Declaration from just a policy statement of Britain to having the weight of international law. And that is significant because there has been no international treaty, no law passed by any recognized uh, authority, including the U.N., to abrogate the decisions made at San Remo, which means it is ba- international law based on the San Remo Convention in 1920 gave everything west of the Jordan River to Israel. And the Israelis should settle for nothing less and complete and total and absolute sovereignty over everything east of the Jordan River, and w- I'm hoping that Americans who come to understand that. And there have been two major works published in just the last year that have come out uh, establishing that, on, by, written by lawyers, establishing that on the basis of international law. And one of the one of the men who, who teaches in, in Toronto was here back in November, and spoke on that, and I gave a little summary of that. Uh, his presentation then but this is this is important because it 's going to have a lot of ramifications in a lot of different areas uh, the, israel has had quite a remarkable history its um, population right now is seven million seven hundred and forty six thousand and five million eight hundred thirty seven thousand of which are jewish israelis that 's just about seventy five percent are jewish israelis twenty percent are Israeli Arabs, uh, 1,587,000 Israeli Arabs, and then there's various other groups that make up uh, the remainder of the, of the population. As of 2010, the world population of Jews is estimated at 13,428,300, which means just a little bit less than half of the Jews in the world now live in uh, Israel. It's interesting. In 1880, 75% 80 to 80% of the world's Jews lived in the area of the uh, uh, called the Pale of Settlement, which we would see today as part of Poland, Belarus, and and Ukraine. So over the last 130 years, there's been a tremendous uh, migration from Eastern Europe, not direct migration, but tremendous movement of Jews out of the Pale of Settlement into Europe into the United States and from all of those places back to Israel so that's our introduction tonight before we get started into the word though let's uh, uh, let's go to the Lord in prayer we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to make sure we're ready to study the word and then I will open in prayer let's pray Father, we're thankful tonight that we can come together this evening just to study your word, to learn how to think more biblically, learn how to think as you think, learn how to think according to your word as you've revealed it to us. Father, we rejoice today with Israel over their 63 years of independence. Father, we pray that you would continue to uh, give them the strength to defend their independence. We know that there are various things that are said in prophecy. We know that once we get into the period after the rapture, that there are many things that are going to happen, not just in Israel but around the world, that are going to bring a tremendous threat of war uh, upon uh, upon the entire world as you bring the world under discipline. But Father, for now we pray for Israel. We pray for their leadership for the Prime Minister Netanyahu for wisdom in negotiating all of the different uh, treacherous paths that they have before them with so many enemies, and they are such a stout ally of the United States. We just uh, pray that they would continue to be in that position. The United States would continue to be a strong supporter of Israel. Father, we also thank you today for the rain we had yesterday and today, and much we need much more of it, but we are very grateful that we have had Uh, this rain, and we continue to pray for more. Father, thank you for this time we have today to look at your word, and we pray that you'd help us to think clearly as we work our way through uh, the remainder of Romans chapter 1. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. Now in Romans 1 we've gone through our basic study of the text and then over the last five lessons I've taken the time to look at the implications of Romans 1, 18, down through 23 in terms of what Paul says about the knowledge of the existence of God. In those incredibly significant verses Paul tells us that Every human being knows God exists. We're made in the image and likeness of God and there's something in every one of us that resonates with the knowledge of God's existence so that everything in creation speaks to us of God's existence and everybody knows that God exists apart from any rational or logical arguments. Various attempts are made as we study to try to articulate the existence of God within some sort of rational uh, philosophical framework, but that is not, as I concluded, what Paul is talking about here. He's talking about the fact that there is something built into every human being that they know their creator, and they know the work of their creator, so when they see it in every tree, every blade of grass, every uh, animal in existence, every atom in the universe, it speaks to us of the existence of God. But because the issue isn't intellectual, the issue isn't social, it doesn't have anything to do with education or money or IQ or anything else, it has to do with with spirituality. It has to do with a person's volition and their desire to either know God or to reject God that the position of many people is to reject God and God consciousness, to go negative to God. They may worship a God. They may worship something and put the label G-O-D on it, but whatever it is that they're worshiping is not the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's not the God, the creator God of Genesis chapter 1. It is some, either an idol, which is a physical uh, representation of a deity made out of stone or wood or metal or something like that, or it's an abstract idol of the mind. And people come up with abstract idols all the time. They generate some view of God, and then they worship that. Uh, they generate some view of Jesus, and they worship that. It's not a view of God or a view of Jesus that's based on the Bible, but it is something that they've generated out of their own emotions or their own opinion, and this is just as much an idol as uh, Baal or the Ashtoreth or Zeus or any of the other uh, gods and goddesses that occupy numerous pantheons across many different cultures. And so because uh, God is known and because man rejects God, God brings judgment on man. Verse 18 For the wrath of God, which is a term which speaks of God's justice, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Now the question that Paul is going to answer in verses 24 to 32 has to do with how is that wrath revealed? What does it look like? Uh, How do we know that God's judgment is coming down on the human race? the wrath of god is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men and the reason then is given in verse 21 because although they knew god they did not glorify him as god nor were thankful but became futile or that is empty in their thoughts in their the word there for thoughts dialogismos has to do with their reasoning process, and it's because in their reasoning process they're excluding God. That is like trying to uh, bake a cake and you're going to leave out the flour. It, whatever it is that you're generating in your thinking is missing the vital element that makes, that, that is the key to truth and to accuracy. So once you exclude God, then no matter Uh, how you think, no matter how erudite your reasoning may be, no matter how many books you may publish or how many uh, doctoral degrees you might earn, at the core you're just fantasizing. Your thinking has been distorted because it leaves out the critical uh, ingredient, which is God and the fact that what you are thinking about, whatever area it may be, is is actually the creation of God. And then what we begin to see, starting in verse 22, or continuing into verse 22 from 23, is the results, the immediate results of this rejection of God. And then starting in verse 24, we'll shift from the results to the consequences. So there's, look, look first of all, the, the results, which is they their thinking became empty, I mean, first of all, they became ungrateful, then their thinking became empty, then their foolish hearts, they're foolish because they've rejected God. That's what makes someone foolish. Their foolish hearts, that is the core of their uh, being, the center of their thinking, is darkened. The result of that is they claim to be wise, but they're actually fools. And then the last result in verse 23 is they exchange the glory of the incorruptible God uh, for an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. So let me summarize that in this way. What are the consequences of rejecting God? A couple of options we have, just thinking about this in a logical manner. First of all, either the personal infinite God of the Bible exists or he does not. Those are the only two options. Either the personal infinite God of the Bible exists as the Bible depicts him or he doesn't exist. Now, if he doesn't exist, then you may have any number of other gods. You may have the Mormon God. The You may have Allah. You may have these... Uh, numerous gods and goddesses in the uh, Hindu pantheon, but uh, or you may just have some sort of uh, immaterial impersonal force, but those are the only two options: either the God of the Bible exists as the Bible describes him, or he does not. If he exists, then we must understand the Bible in a somewhat lit- literal manner because the logic of his existence Within the, and knowing about him within the Bible is that we can only know him as he has revealed himself to us. Otherwise, we're just making it up. We're just creating our own idea of God. So if the God of the Bible exists, then we know about him only through the Bible because this is where he has revealed himself to us. And so we must understand the Bible in a somewhat literal manner, taking him at his word. On the other hand, and now this is a third point, if he does not exist, then the Bible is no more relevant to either Jews or Christians than the Bhagavad Gita or the Quran or any other religious book or even a non-religious book like George Orwell's 1984. We have no idea what's out there. If the Bible isn't true... And that God doesn't exist, and we have no idea what's out there. It's just pure guesswork, and your guess is as good as mine. And our guess is no better, no worse than some Aborigine out on the uh, plains of Africa or some fisherman out on the ocean or wherever they might be. It's just everybody's guess. Some may be a little more sophisticated and some less sophisticated, but everybody, all anybody has is a guess. We're worse. We're in worse shape than the man in Plato's cave because there's not even a light behind us to cast a shadow. We're just all sitting in darkness trying to generate some, some vision of what's there without being able to see anything. And so nobody has any idea. So we just end up guessing, and all we have is one opinion over against another opinion. And whoever has the most power gets to put, put their opinion in place. And so it becomes a power game, which is mostly what we've seen down through history. If you think about ancient history, the ancient empires, Egypt, Mesopotamia, Greece, Rome, all deified uh, their rulers and their governments. Because if there's no God out there, then the only ultimate power that we have is the individual uh, human being. But if if the Bible is true, and we believe it is true, then it claims not only to give truth, but also certainty and hope, confidence, so we can base everything upon that. So our assumption is, for the sake of expressing this, our assumption is that the Bible is true, that God exists and that he has revealed himself to us in a way that we can understand his revelation to us in the Bible. Our next assumption is that if we reject this self-disclosure of God, then based on his revelation, we are simply creating fantasies about reality. We have one book. It's sort of like people who get... Go to the store, and I'm one of them. Go, go to the store, and you buy something that has to be assembled. You go out, and you buy a new gas grill, and you bring it home, and you have to assemble it. It comes in a box, and you have to, almost need an instruction book to be able to open the box. But after somehow you have managed to... Uh, reverse engineer the packaging and you get all the parts and screws out and everything then you have to take that instruction book that's now just given in pictures and it's usually written by somebody for whom english is a fourth or fifth language and so you can't really understand whatever's written there anyway you just have to be able to decipher uh, the pictures and sometimes the, the xerox machine used to produce the pictures has extra little dots and Pictures in there, so we all have fun doing that. You all know what I mean. I just had to uh, put in all the new parts in my grill this last weekend, and that was a lot of fun. So we have a, you have a guidebook, though. But many of us, rather than look at the instructions, what we do is we think that somehow we are so mechanically inclined that we can just look at all these various little screws and nuts and bolts and pieces and everything and we can put it all together by ourselves. And then after three or four hours of frustration we finally decide to dig around and find the instruction book and see if we can look at the pictures. Well what most people are doing in life is that they have not only rejected the f- Instruction book and thought that they can do the assembly themselves, but they burned the instruction book so that there's no way they can ever find their way back to it, and they are committed to uh, running life on their own terms. This is what is the Paul is talking about here when he says that that everyone knows that God exists. They've got an internal compass that points them to God, but they are suppressing that truth in unrighteousness. As a result of that, God is going to bring judgment upon them. Now, we see the consequences of that rejection of God outlined in this chapter. What this chapter is saying is that, telling us, is that when we reject God, when we reject that instruction book, and in this case what we've got is a picture book. We don't have an explanation in detail like we used to get with Things, we just have a picture book. That's general revelation. I think that fits nice, nicely with the illustration. You just have pictures. But those pictures are, are sufficient for our knowledge of God. But when man is rejected, what happens? People in their arrogance begin to construct reality according to their own imagination. That's why in the Old Testament you have these statements about the imagination of man is evil continuously because man in his imagination is generating these fantasy worlds. And you might have a different fantasy world for every single human being. They are constructing their own view of reality. They've rejected the guidebook, and so now they're making things up as they go along. This is just called fantasy. And the more an individual gets divorced from the reality of, of truth and constructs his fantasy, and the further his fantasy gets away from reality, then the more dangerous that person becomes. They become dangerous to themselves, and they become dangerous to others. But when you get a tribe or a nation of people or a culture of people who have rejected the truth... And are living in a group fantasy, then things can get even worse. Just think about radical Islam. You have a whole group of people who are living on, uh, you know, living on the basis of a group fantasy, and it is completely divorced from any measure of reality. And the more they live on that basis, the more dangerous they become to themselves and to other cultures and to uh, to other people. But everybody does this to one degree or another. We call it fantasy. And the reality is that whether we like it or not, we're all constructing our own view of a reality. You all know the old saying about the neurotic builds castles in the sky and the psychotic moves in and lives in those castles and the psychiatrist collects the rent. Well, most of us... When we're in rebellion against God's truth, or somewhere we're, we're going to our castle on a vacation basis. We're partially neurotic and we're partially psychotic. And that's true for everybody. This is why psychology seems to have uh, some sort of hope for people, is because there is a sense based on Scripture that, and because of sin that we're all neurotic. Now, you know me. I don't like using these... Uh, psychobabble terms because they all carry a lot of baggage with them, but um, I'm going to use it for pedagogical purposes. All of this plays into something that I call the blind hog principle, the blind hog principle. A blind hog finds a few acorns every now and then, and human beings who've rejected the light of the truth of God are going to find Acorns. They are going to find acorns of truth, lowercase t, here and there. And so whatever system you look at, there are going to be acorns of truth in those systems. And so they seem to work. They've got to fit with reality to a certain degree or uh, you'll, you really will get put in an uh, institution in a straitjacket. So there has to be a certain level. You can only divorce yourself from God to a certain extent, and beyond that, because you're creating the image and likeness of God, you just can't go, or you will be uh, truly be in the nut house. The problem that we see is that in this whole issue of rejecting truth and then trying to manufacture it out of out of whole cloth without any idea or reference to an, some sort of ultimate absolute, it's like we all have a, the same jigsaw puzzle, but we're not going to look at the box top to see what it's supposed to look like. We're just going to look at this jigsaw puzzle and all these, you know, 5,000 pieces in front of us, and we're going to generate out of our own imagination what it's supposed to look like. And then we're going to start putting those pieces together. Now, some don't fit. Some almost fit, so we force them. Others don't fit, so we ignore them and we just brush them aside somewhere because uh, we're not comfortable. They don't fit our reality, so we'll just ignore it. And then we construct our little castle in the sky. But once we start living as if those castles are real... It has real, it has significant consequences, and that's what Paul is talking about here. Is that when people reject God and they uh, substitute something else, it has consequences. They're they're constructing their castles in the clouds, and they're trying to move into them. And there are always certain uh, consequences because they have divorced themselves completely from the rea- from reality. So with the initial rejection of God, we see that there there are basically five results. The first result is arrogance. They don't glorify God. That means they reject the Creator out of ingratitude. And that is nothing more than pure arrogance. So just a reminder of our arrogance skills, and I've added another element to it. We start with self-absorption. Man makes himself the ultimate measure of, of reality. There's not an external reference point to appeal to. We become the ultimate determination of truth. We are self-absorbed. Then we begin to indulge ourselves in that fantasy that we actually determine the course of life, that we're in control. And after a while, as we live on the basis of self-indulgence, then we begin to justify all of our actions that come from self-indulgence And this leads to greater self-deception. So now we're moving into that castle in the sky. And this leads to self-deification. That's what we see here in in Romans chapter 1. We become the ultimate determiner of reality. We determine it. We shape it. We define it. Reality is what I want it to be. Don't let God interfere whatsoever. And then we go back on the same track with self-absorption. So it's just an ongoing uh, process, never-ending process, unless it is broken by the grace of God. And at the center of all of these is I. Every individual makes himself out to be God. Even if you're worshiping Baal or the Ashtaroth or Uh, Newt in the Egyptian pantheon or Isis or Osiris, whoever it is, who made the decision that that's God? You did, or the individual does. So it all comes down to this measure of arrogance. So self-absorption destroys gratitude to God. This is exactly what happens with Eve in the garden she makes herself the one to determine whether God was right or not. When Satan came along and asked that trick question and said, did God really say that if you eat from that tree, you will die? He's putting her in a position to judge whether God is right or not. So she's putting herself over God as the ultimate arbiter or determiner of reality. A result of that according to verse 21, is that the reasoning processes become warped because they're missing the vital element of God's control, God's existence, God's control, and God is the one who determines reality. Third, there's a loss of understanding based on the loss of the ultimate reference point of objectivity. There's no truth. And then they start playing with truth and changing the definition of truth until you get into the kind of uh, quagmire we're in today where there is no truth. And then you have to ask the question, is that true, that there is no truth? And uh, if somebody's smart, they'll say, oh, don't, I don't want to get caught in that trap. Well, it's not a trap. It's, it's reality. If the, the statement there is no truth is true, then wait a minute. How could it be true if there's no truth? So you, you now you know why it's empty reasoning, because they're ultimately living in a realm of complete irrationality, and the only thing that can move them is either their emotions or power or some other form of lust. And that's why you have in that kind of environment, I believe, such uh, that we have in our country today, such a move towards drugs, towards uh, any anything that brings pleasure. You have this rise of now they call it addiction. We just called it bad habits or sinful habits. Uh, but now it's addiction. So if it's an addiction, then it's not my problem. It's, I just have a disease. So I, I don't have a sexual addiction. I don't have a drug addiction. I don't have alcohol addiction uh, I mean, I do, I, uh, they do claim that they have all these addictions, rather, um, and they're not responsible for it. It's just a disease: sexual addiction, uh, drug addiction, alcohol addiction. All of these things are just something that happened to me, and it's not my fault. I'm just, I'm just a victim. As a result, they, we erect these just fa- fantastic. Castles in the air of science and logic to justify the existence of the castle in the air. And that's verse 22, professing to be wise, they became fools. They think they are filled with intellectual accomplishments and wisdom and skill, but it's really foolishness. And the psalmist said in the Hebrew scriptures that the fool has said in his heart there is no God. He is a fool because he has said there is no God. It's not because he existed autonomously as the fool and this is just somebody who's a moron and they have a room temperature IQ and so they're not smart enough to accept the fact that there's a God. It's the fact that they have a an IQ of 130, 140, 180, or 200, and they say there is a God, and now they are a fool because they have denied the reality, the ultimate reality in the universe. So the fourth result is they claiming to be wise. They become fools. And the fifth result is they exchange the glory of God for creatures, and they are exchanging truth for a lie and reality for fantasy. Now we have consequences. Consequences start to get spelled out in verse 24. We have the statement, Therefore God also gave them up to uncleanness in the lust of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves. Now this begins with a word in the Greek that is a little bit different from what we normally expect when we see a therefore this is a strong word. It's the Greek word dio, D-I-O, and it's a strong emphatic uh, stating a conclusion. And it is stating the results of a previous statement. And when we look at the context of verses 24 and 25, we see that they are spelling out the beginning to spell out the consequences of of those first five results. Those first five results, arrogance, self-absorption, which destroyed gratitude, the warping of the weas- reasoning, the loss of understanding, uh, claiming wisdom when they were f- and it's re- in reality foolishness, and then exchanging uh, the glory of God for creatures, all of that is immediate as a result of sin. Then what we see is verse twenty-four and following is what happens as God gives them gives the human race all of us enough rope to hang ourselves, so to speak. That's the basic idea in the uh, phrase "God gave them up." In the Greek, this is a word which means to deliver someone up. For example, you may deliver a prisoner to his uh, prison. You may betray somebody, give them over to somebody, hand them over to somebody. The word is used of uh, Judas handing over Jesus to uh, the Roman authorities and basically means here that God let them go their sinful way. But if you put it that way, God just let them go their sinful way to realize the consequences of their decision, it indicates sort of a permissiveness to God's will and a level of passivity that isn't there. This is an active voice verb. God is actively involved in overseeing this process. We will see that there are three such statements in the following verses. In verse 24, we have stage one. God gives them over to certain things. Verse 26, for this reason, because of the sins Identified in verses 24 and 25, God gave them up to vile passions. This is the next level of degradation. And then verse 28, we read, even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind. This is the third level of degradation. So these three levels of degradation that we have here in verses uh, 24 to 32 are actually judgments of God on the human race. We often hear people say, well, if you look at this culture that we have, God certainly uh, needs to judge it. No, judge well, the culture that we have is God's judgment on this culture for rejecting him. And it's just going to get worse. And God is going to continue to uh, remove whatever restraints there are on the culture so that people realize the ultimate consequences of their bad decisions but the fact that this word is used god gives them over shows that god is actively involved in the process he's overseeing it it doesn't just happen in a uh, random way he is overseeing the process of the degradation uh, of the culture He's not just simply removing restraints. He's doing it in in specific stages to bring about certain consequences. And part of his design is so that some people, as they hit the negative consequences, will sort of wake up and begin to think, well, wait a minute, Uh, maybe we ought to rethink our position. So as some people come under divine discipline, they respond by saying, okay, I need to correct something and get right with God, whereas other people just continue to harden their heart or harden their vo- uh, their volition uh, against God. Now, verse 24 says that God also gave them up or gave them over to uncleanness. Now, the New King James Version has a different order of words than what we have in the Greek text. Uh, New American Standard follows the Greek order But I think the uh, New King James Version, probably the King James Version, has an order that is better in terms of English. He gives them up to uncleanness. Uncleanness is expressed in the text with a phrase that indicates the ultimate goal. That's what he's giving them over to is uncleanness, and it is expressed as the result of the lust of their heart couple of things we have to talk about here to understand this is that the word that is translated uncleanness is the Greek word akatharsia. Akatharsia. Now the a is the negative. That's like a, a un prefix in English. Katharsia is a familiar word. It's the word from where we get the, the noun uh, katharos for clean. Katharizo is the verb to be cleansed. So akatharsi is just the negative its uncleanness. Now what's interesting is when this word is used in the New Testament there tends to be a, a tend to, tends to be slanted towards um more of a use in a context of sexual immorality but that's I believe is read more into the text uh, by our modern theologians who seem to have a problem with sex than what the Scripture says. Because if you go back into the Old Testament, this word in the uh, in the um, Septuagint was used to translate anything that resulted in ritual impurity or spiritual impurity. Anything that separated a person from God is akatharsia, it makes you unclean. It basically, it makes you out of fellowship. So by t- giving in, in certain contexts, and there's a certain uh, negative sexual uh, context here in Romans chapter 1, but that's, sexual perversion isn't the only result of the rejection of God. So I think it's a mistake to limit this to, to a nuance related to sexual perversion. It's related to all areas of sin that separate human beings from God. So God gives them over to uncleanness, which is in the lust of their hearts. So the uncleanness is the result of their lust. So this needs to take us back to a little review of something we haven't seen in a very long time, and that's the sin nature. Now, the... (coughs) The drive shaft of the sin nature is the lust pattern. This is what's at the very core of our uh, sin nature. This is what motivates us, our various lust patterns. Uh, at the, in one direction, going to the uh, 12 o'clock position, we have our area of strength or human good. Human good is just as much a product of the sin nature as what we define as personal sins, but it is done in the context of, of not being in relationship to God. For example, you have all kinds of people who are uh, unbelievers. They don't believe in God at all. They're not regenerate. They only can operate on the basis of their sin nature. They can do many wonderful things. There are many wonderful wonderful people out there who are not christians and they have great morality in fact there are a lot of religious people in a lot of different uh, religions who are much more uh, moral faithful diligent than many many christians but the issue so they do perform a certain measure of good but it's not a good that measures up to god And and Jesus is talking to his disciples at one point, and he says, you being evil. So he recognizes the basic nature of man is evil. He's talking to his disciples. says, you being evil know how to give good gifts to your children. Being evil, or what theologians call total depravity, doesn't mean you're as bad as you can be. It means that every area of our being has been corrupted by sin so that we can't do anything that measures up to the absolute perfect righteousness of God. This was clearly taught in the Old Testament when Isaiah said that all of our works of righteousness are as filthy rags, that even the best we do falls far short of God's absolute standard. So the filthy rags righteousness is human good. At the other end, we have those personal sins that we're all aware of. You have overt sins like uh, murder and violence. You have mental attitude sins such as jealousy and envy and anger and impatience and uh, numerous other mental attitude sins. And then you have sins of the tongue such as slander and libel, um, (coughs) taking the Lord's name in vain, which doesn't mean using profanity. It means assigning God's name to a cause when God has not validated that cause. It's putting God it's swearing in court. It's swearing in court in God's name when you don't really uh, believe in God and you're not really going to tell the truth. That's taking God's name in vain. Now when we look at the trends, we can go in two opposite directions. One trend goes in the direction of morality. We have asceticism, legalism, and epistemologically, this is rationalism. Now, I'm not going to go into that, those connections right now. That's beyond what I'm talking about here. But this is the idea that, that in asceticism and legalism that somehow we can impress God with how good we are. But this can degenerate into moral degeneracy. There, Nothing can be as bad as a self-righteous person who is going around trying to make everyone else conform to their self-righteousness. And just just hang around with somebody who's a reformed alcoholic or a reformed smoker, and if you like to have an occasional social drink or an occasional cigarette or cigar, and as soon as one person quits, then everybody has to quit. Or get around somebody in a diet as soon as you know they've gotten on all this health food, and you do too. So they've succumbed to uh, self-righteousness and legalism in those areas, and then they want to enforce that on everybody else. That is just a tyranny of arrogance. On the other side, you have the people who reject standards. This crowd's a lot more fun. The other crowd's a lot harder to witness to. It's a lot harder to witness to because they think they're good enough. They don't need to be saved. They don't need salvation. This is why when Jesus came along, who was it that got upset with him? Not the pimps and the prostitutes and the tax collectors. They were glad because Jesus came and offered a great solution to their problem. They knew they could never be, they weren't even going to try to be good enough for God. But the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they had been working diligently to try to impress God. when Jesus came along and said it wasn't working, all that did was make him mad. And so they, they got so mad that they killed him. Now, the other trend, when you're trending towards the opposite direction, you have licentiousness, which means everything's okay, and that can convert wrongly into areas of, of, of grace abuse where well, Jesus died for that sin, so I'm okay. I'll just confess later, or maybe you'll confess ahead of time the doctrine of prebound. Then we have this produces antinomianism. Anarchy is another is in the government political realm. It produces irrationalism where there's no... Um, there's no logic. There's no boundaries. I'm just going to think and believe whatever I want to think and believe, which leads to mysticism, and it leads to immoral degeneracy. Now, some people can have a trend mostly to one direction or another. Every now and then, you might hit an area of life where you where you be bounce back to the other side. But the lust patterns drive things. And so what what um, Paul is saying here is God gave them o- over to uncleanness. Uh, by the lust of their hearts. It's an end clause there, and it indicates that the lust pattern is, is the is the core mover, and what it produces are the sins that separate them from God that become the uncleanness. So God gives them over to that. That doesn't mean that God causes them to do those things, but it is that God gives them the freedom to pursue the belief, the rejection of him that they want to, and to see the consequences of that uh, in their life, so God gave them up to uncleanness, uh, by the lust are uh, in the lust of their hearts, that is the soul their, in their thinking, which is influenced by the sin nature, to dishonor their bodies among themselves. And so we see that it's not just a mental thing, but it has an outworking in the physical life of the, uh, of the individual. And so they are going to dishonor their bodies. It d- Paul doesn't allow us to have this this gnostic separation between the spiritual and the physical the in, in the or the immaterial and the physical in the immaterial realm you've rejected God and you're pursuing lust, and this has a consequence in the uh in the physical realm, and so they dishonor their bodies. Uh, among themselves in a variety of different ways. Now, at this point, it is just talking about the the first level. We don't get into the sin of homosexuality and lesbianism until we get down into the next couple of categories. So they exchanged the truth of God for a lie, and then verse 25 says they exchanged the truth of God for a lie. It's an aorist tense there, which indicates that the starting point for this was the rejection of God, the, the, an idolatry, exchanging the truth of God for a lie. And in, the, in this statement, there's several things here that are, are quite significant about this, ex, this exchange, is that it uh, accepts the fact that there is an absolute truth. There is an absolute truth. It has the article with it. They are exchanging the truth, the absolute truth, so it's an uppercase truth of God that is the truth that comes from God for the lie. That's the only option. You're either believing the truth of God or you're believing a lie, and the result is that they worship and serve the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Now, in the process of doing this, what are they, what are they doing? They're getting involved in idolatry. They're either overt idolatry or abstract idolatry. The first two commandments of the Ten Commandments relate to the, word, the exclusive worship of God and the rejection of idolatry. There's a reason that is at the beginning. In Exodus 20, verse 3, the first commandment, God says, You shall have no other gods before me. And in verse 4, the second commandment, You shall not make for yourself a carved image. The reason these are first is they become the foundation for all law. If you don't have a, a law grounded in an ultimate reference point, an ultimate absolute, then there's no basis for law, and law either is to, becomes the whim of the kings or the majority opinion of people, either of which can change in another five or ten years. And that's one of the things we're seeing in our culture because we've lost this idea of law being grounded in God. Where do you see that? Well, when they remove the Ten Commandments out of courtrooms. This isn't an issue of freedom of religion. It is an issue of what is the ultimate source of law, and the ultimate source of law is God. And this has been this has been demonstrated uh, through uh, in, by various people uh, through British law, German law, French law, Western law, going back into the latter part of the Roman Empire. There's numerous hundreds of thousands of statements which recognize that law comes from God. But once you are suppressing the truth and unrighteousness, you want to get rid of all this stuff. And so law then has its source in either people, the individual, or it has its source in the king, one or the other and then it becomes changeable, and that's what we see so much. We see laws put forth one year, and then somebody else wants to destroy and take it away a decade later, and this destroys stability, and it ends up destroying the integrity of a culture because everything becomes changeable, and there are no absolutes. So then there are going to be two more stages of results, and we'll get into those uh, next time as we... Uh, probably we'll finish up the first chapter. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study these things and to uh, focus on this uh, first chapter of Romans and to see how uh, that there are real consequences, internal and then external, to the rejection of God. And while this applies and focuses most on unbelievers, it is just as true for believers because when we choose to sin and rebel against you, it is as if we are saying... You're not there, we're worshiping something else right now. We're worshiping our own uh, lust patterns, or we're worshiping our own desires, or we're worshiping whatever uh, we want to focus on at the moment. Father, we pray that you would help us to see how we too succumb to these same uh, patterns, and we too succumb to these uh, same lust patterns, and it has the same impact on our lives whenever we are out of fellowship and living apart from you father we pray that you would challenge us with what we've learned in christ's name amen